Welcome back to Seaweed Brain, a Percy Jackson podcast. Since May of 2020, we have been reading Rick Reardon's books and seeing to answer the question, is Percibeth the greatest love story ever told? This week, we may have more evidence to help us support our answer. Percibeth is Percibething. Protectors are detecting. And the actors. <laughs> The actors are acting. <laughs> we have a very special guest here to discuss why this is definitely the best episode yet. Stick around. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Carter, I can't get over your cold read of that intro I wrote. <laughs> you said this is my first time looking at these words. What the hell did you write? Welcome back. I'm Erica. I'm the co-host of this podcast, joined as always by Carter. Yes. Hi. It's true. And today we brought on the one person who could say things about this episode that we couldn't. And that is Liam Crowley from comicbook.com. What's up, Liam? Hey, everyone. It's been uh, it's been some time and we have a show now, which is amazing. The last time I was on this show, we didn't even have footage. So here we are. You also have your own show now. Oh, my God. Yeah. Riptide Radio every uh, Tuesday immediately following the episodes of Percy Jackson. I didn't realize I was going to plug it at the top of the show. But uh, yeah, if you guys like hearing analysis on Percy. <laughs> There's one more show in the catalog for you. I think it's important that we plug it because you're going to bring to us some some insights and some facts and some cultural awareness that we cannot possibly provide because you're a huge wrestling fan. And yesterday you talked <laughs> to Adam Copeland, who is in this episode. I did. And uh, some Seaweed Brain exclusives that I'll probably end up referencing on this episode. I talked to Timothy O'Mudson today and I haven't written that article, time of this recording, but I can't help but talk about what he shared with me. Um, so we'll we'll dive into that as well. Oh my God, Seaweed Brain exclusives. If you're listening to this episode before Liam has dropped his written articles. <laughs> Don't tell my boss. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody email Bob Backish from Paramount, please. If you're listening, Bob, I, 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 I do it all for you. <laughs> this is also funny. This is almost exactly a year since Liam first came on Seaweed Brain. Or like last, if you don't count our live show for Trials of Apollo. It's wild because we were predicting a show that was still in production. Uh, like it hadn't wrapped yet. It was, uh, I think it was like a month out before they they stopped filming. Yeah, there were so many casting decisions that were still up in the air when we had that conversation, which is wild. It might have been before Zeus and Poseidon, genuinely. I know yeah. Zeus and Poseidon were announced like literally the last couple weeks of production. Yeah, that's wild to think about. We were planning a whole set of episodes we were going to break down the whole season and then it's okay because we're gonna do it for sea of monsters we're gonna do it for sea of (laughs) monsters we're writing our spec script for all eight episodes of the second season don't worry it's coming (laughs) we need to thank our patrons carter will you do that for us express our gratitude i sure will our new and sustaining patrons that we're gonna thank today are fatima M, DJ, Samuel, Max, Justin, who's a new sustaining member, uh, Lorelai, Tori, hi, Danielle, Harley, Mia, Riptide23, Jennifer, Jamie, Kari, Haverian, Daniel M, Ryan, Jacob, Melanie, Natalia, Aaron, Pinatas Full of Bees, Mani, and 
Raphael. And as always, our sustaining members that we want to thank are Dayton and Jordan. Yay! Thank you all for joining our Patreon. We have 11 special episodes there. We ha- we owe everybody a special episode from December, and we're going to do a special episode in January. They might not come until February, though, because I don't know if you guys heard, but Percy Jackson is airing right now, and we've been really busy. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's talk about this episode. At a high level, I wanted to mention that this is the first episode that Jet Wilkinson is directing. First two were James, and then it was Anders. And if you guys don't know who Jet Wilkinson is, she's kind of iconic. She's an Australian director, and she worked on The Old Man with John and Dan. She also directed for First Kill, which I thought was something in particular that the Seaweed Brain listeners would find to be really cool. Also, she was a big part of How to Get Away with Murder. Um, and she's done episodes for a bunch of things like Daredevil, Jessica Jones, Punisher, um, Um, She directed two episodes for the upcoming live-action Avatar The Last Airbender. I wanted to shout that out because we forgot to mention that Anders directed um, the previous two episodes, and he was also a director on famed, notable, possibly greatest (laughs) television show ever, C, on Apple TV starring Jason Momoa. So last week, we said that episode four was an incredible mid-season finale. Was it technically a mid-season finale? No. We did not take a break in between episodes or anything, but the energy was there. It was like an act one closer. And it could have been. When they filmed the episodes, when they were breaking the season, they could have had a different release strategy, or this was like maybe right before Christmas and they took a break and they came back, you know, like an old TV show. And it really could have been because I don't know about y'all, but Walker looks older in this episode, like significantly from the St. Louis Arch episode. <laughs> no like when, way. Well, I, I don't know that for certain. I don't know exactly when they filmed the episodes, but like that's how it would work with TV. Like there's sometimes with TV shows, they'll mm-hmm. shoot the first half of the season. They go on break for like six months. And during those six months, they shoot the back half. So yeah, that seeing those little tweaks, I was like, yeah, this did feel like a mid-season premiere. There you go. It was like the energy was like flowing up to Percy's breathing underwater moment. He's like accepting this identity in a way and he's accepting his role in life as a demigod and he's going to figure out now in this back half of the season what kind of hero he's going to be. And that is what we get deep into in this episode in a way that I did not anticipate to get into this soon. You know what I mean? No, I think this is right. I think instead, like in the beginning, we were learning a lot of new information about how the world works. We were gaining perspectives and we were figuring out what everyone can do. And the second half of the season is going to be about not just showing what we can do, but deciding what we're going to do once we've established all of those things. All the ideas, all the ways of being are laid out on the table. All of the abilities are laid out on the table. And now we're going to be deliberate. We're not going to fly by the seat of our pants through monster encounters where we're doing in like a split second like moment what we need to do to survive and not get knocked out. This is the point where we are going to start in this episode making more calculated decisions that are influenced by all of the different mostly ideological threads that we've laid out previously but then also like factoring into account everything that we know about the characters relationships to each other and to the divinities that we are contemplating in the show yeah i think that we introduced a lot of themes in the first half of the season from like what is a monster to like glory Kleos um, and then the idea of family and now I really feel like we are sinking deeper into the idea of family last week's episode this is a family story into now getting Hephaestus's perspective on his upbringing Annabeth having a conversation to Hephaestus about choosing to not be like that and then also Grover's conversation with Ares I feel like we are departing from the books at this point in the season in a way that I really appreciate, but that feels like a distinct departure from this point onwards, um, where for the most part, we've been following like the events of the book and we've been with Percy. And now we are getting through the presence of these other gods, through the expansion of these other characters, 
a bigger, larger bird's eye view of this world that expands outside of just Percy's perspective. Because when we're in the books, we are following Percy on his journey, on his little hero's journey. And the most important thing to him is protecting his friends and keeping himself alive if that's also possible. Mm -hmm. But now we're seeing that he's just one little figure in this entire universe, you know? And like, that is what we're getting in the TV show is that there are many different people who are all involved in this world. And that's what's so exciting. Like it already, Mm -hmm. I was reading back through these chapters of The Lightning Thief and I was like, wow, it already feels so, like the, the book already feels so limited in its scope compared to the show. And I think that's like a perspective thing too, because they were saying a lot of people who have been giving interviews uh, behind the scenes, people are like, well, the book is just told through Percy's perspective. So now we have the mm-hmm. luxury of seeing what Annabeth is like when Percy isn't in the room or what Grover's like when Percy isn't in the room. Um, and that, like you said, it makes the world feel so much more lived in. And I, I just remember the drastic shift I felt reading Percy Jackson to Heroes of Olympus for the first time because then we get all those different perspectives and now mm-hmm. it feels like it's not fully a hero structure it's very clearly that this is still Percy's story primarily but the fact yes. that we are giving attention to like Grover feels so much more like his own character than a supporting mm-hmm. player at this point in the story which is not something I felt in The Lightning Thief I always felt like he was a sidekick in the story but we're mm-hmm. already talking about Pan we're already having him like interrogate Ares like these little things I think enhance the experience so much more without like being like disrespectful to the source material yeah yeah for sure this is the magic of television you could not well you could write a book with multiple perspectives as rick famously has done but i think (laughs) as an adaptation it feels like the right way to balance like a strong sense that this is percy's story and you can feel that in the scaffolding but also like if this were a movie you would, I don't think you'd be able to do this. I think that you'd be too time crunched that you wouldn't be able to like luxuriate in other people's perspectives yeah. for reasons other than like you have to like ease up on the gas for like yeah. pressure pacing, um, like mechanical reasons. You know, whereas yeah. in this situation, we're doing this partially because we want to expand the world, but also because it does serve the story for Percy to be in the backseat for this episode, kind of. Certainly yeah. more than he has been in any of the previous ones. Yeah. I feel like. I don't look at the books as a family story. I know we talked about how that phrase has multiple meanings for this fandom, but I don't think about mm-hmm. Percy Jackson and the Olympians as being a, fa- a story about a toxic family. Uh, this show is very much starting to feel like a story about a toxic family. And I do feel like it's a little Disney stamp onto <laughs> this material. Like we had to make it about the family. We had to make it about the parent-child relationship. And I'm very much not complaining. I think that it's so smart yeah. because in a TV show you want to make, oh my gosh, you know, I think I forgot to mention this to Daphne when she was on the show. So maybe we'll do it next time. But something John Steinberg said on Fathoms Deep, Daphne's podcast, was that if you're ever having a problem when you're trying to write for TV and you're trying to figure out where this one character is going or what this one character is doing, it's probably because TV shows aren't about what one person wants. They're about the relationships between two people and how Mm -hmm. that relationship affects the world around them. So if you're trying to write for one character and it's not working, it's probably because you're missing the other character. And if you put the other character in there, it'll fix everything. And if you're writing for two characters and it's not working, you're missing the third character and you need to add the third character into that dynamic. Mm -hmm. It's all about the relationships. I agree, yeah. There was a long thing I wanted to have a conversation about with the concept of this adaptation centering around family in a way that the books Mm -hmm. do not. The one other thing I want to say and us to talk about before we dive in, because we very much anticipate Liam having to leave before we finish this episode recording, (laughs) based on how previous episodes have gone, is that the brilliance, the genius of the Tunnel of Love episode is that you think in the coming of age 
tropey storytelling, like middle school, high school movie that going into the tunnel of love between these two characters who like at the beginning of the episode, they hugged um, and they're clearly like starting to be friends for the first time. You think that they're going to have some like little moment in the tunnel of love where they're going to like accidentally hold hands or like encounter some like physical obstacle that is going to like push them into like a weird, awkward cooties kind of space. That is not what happens here. What happens here is more and deeper and better in exactly the way that it should be for Persebeth. Because Mm -hmm. like we've been talking about, Persebeth is not about the romance. And when we say that phrase, we're not talking about like the romantic love story between these two people. That's part of it. But we're talking about the way that these two characters who are so different and have such different life experiences offer each other their different perspectives and allow each other to grow in this like miraculous way and as partners as they face the world together. And so the way that they go into the tunnel of love, two people having a chit chat, maybe Percy might be asking Annabeth out on a movie date before they get in there. And then, you know, they're (laughs) underground and all of a sudden Percy is sacrificing himself for her, telling her that she is better than him and good at things and validating her, which is the one thing that she really wants to hear, you know, that like her competence (laughs) is seen and appreciated. And then Annabeth then turns around and says that Percy is a hero in the way that we need heroes to be and that I want to be like him. They experience like the highest level of emotional intimacy and vulnerability in this episode possible, which is such a brilliant way of taking the tunnel of love trope and just blowing it up and saying, oh, you want to see something cute happen between these two characters? What if one of them dies for 10 minutes and the other one is (laughs) screaming before he comes back? Like that is, to me, that is Persebeth. That is my soapbox. I I think it's worth harping on the, the comparison to the classical idea for a second. If this were a regular say like 22 episode american television show from the like early 2010s if this were god forbid like a k-drama or something like the point of this episode would be um light banter and then like two or three like short scenes that are visually striking and that would make good montage fodder right like the two of them bump up against each other in a way where like their expressions reveal surprise and that perhaps they're seeing things in a different perspective but the it's idea kiss of the girl it's kiss the girl is the like what you it's would kiss think the girl be. yes it's like a fun accident prone thing like the idea that this is a bit contingent you know but like what we're seeing instead is a situation where their entire relationship is built on being co-workers in a not shady way like they're here because they're working together because they're (laughs) working through obstacles that are not random in their way and also because like you you couldn't do the montage cut with this episode like i i don't think there is there are like two or three moments where we're like yeah okay the moment when they walk into the amusement park amazing make it a wallpaper but like the actual like emotional crux of the episode is not like something that you could put into a nice flashback montage it is like these characters giving monologues about each other and shot in a way where it's not the two of them like up against each other like it's not based around strange contingent physical intimacy yeah it's based around an inevitable (laughs) like ideological and relational thing that is at the core of the way that the show is structured like the show is about them doing these dangerous things together and learning from each other and like this like the rest of the show doesn't work without this in the way that the other things are just classically, like, you're just throwing kindling so that someday you can light it, which is not the same process at all. Like, we are stacking bricks here, you know? Like, Literally. if there's a brick missing, you can't build it, which is different from the other model. Um, That's what I'm saying. The structural support scenes 
<laughs> there are beams. There are there is a underground foundation full of like shock beams that will uh, be able to w- the building will be able to stay standing if there is a hurricane or an earthquake. Like the foundation <laughs> is present, and and people are like, oh, it's a slow burn. Persephone is a slow burn, and the slow burn is slow burning so good in the show. I'm like, um. What slow burn are you watching? Because these two characters have already sacrificed their lives for one another twice. Five episodes into the season. Like, I understand that the romantic component is a long slow burn, but like the actual relationship is is so close. I have a question for you guys. Um, <laughs> this isn't what happens in the books. Obviously, like this, this level of emotional vulnerability does not come up until later. I would argue even like the Battle of the Labyrinth, at least. Um, And so I felt like Annabeth, we got to see the side of her that we don't get to see in the books. And even though the scene doesn't happen in the books, if it were to have happened in the book, we still wouldn't have known about it because Percy was like basically dead for that period of time. So I just wonder, like, now that we have seen Annabeth have this emotional moment, is that going to affect her character arc? Or is it not going to affect her character arc and her relationship with Percy because he didn't hear any of that? Like, we heard it, but he doesn't know that that's the way that she feels, you know? And I don't think Hephaestus is going to tell anybody. Except Athena. Oh! <laughs> um, I, well, see, I, I still do think that Percy and Annabeth's relationship is a slow burn in the grand scheme of things, but they are constantly put into fight-or-flight scenarios where mm-hmm. their emotions are just forced to be dialed up to 10. Um, like, mm-hmm. nothing in the Tunnel of Love. Like, we talked, you mentioned, uh, both of you, the whole, like, how it would go on the CW of like merging them together and like, Oh, you got to hold hands now or something like that. They're put in those situations still, but like on an emotional level of like, listen, I have to sacrifice myself right now. And here's everything I feel about you and my admirations for your most positive qualities. And then on the flip side, I have to save you right now. And here's how much I admire this guy and please like let my friend go. So I still Mm -hmm. do think when they are like talking to each other, it is still very much like a slow burn. However, in those moments of fight or flight, like it advances things so much further. And then when we like return to like the slow burnness, we're still, you know, walking at like a slower pace, but maybe it's like 1.2 miles per hour now, as opposed to like (laughs) one mile per hour. Um, My co-host again, shout out Nicole Drum on Riptide Radio. She made a very uh, good metaphor about something like this, where like with a puzzle um, and how like the pieces kind of like reveal the whole picture when like you put down one piece and all of a sudden you see everything. She talked about how the Persebeth relationship is like a Rubik's cube in the sense of like you make one twist and all of a sudden one side of it is like all one color. And it's like, oh my God, we just, all we did was one little motion, but now everything seems clear. But at the end of the day, that's just one side of however many sides are on a cube. I've never been a math guy. Um, but like we're, we're <laughs> getting to a point where like, sure, we've made a lot of progress and we can have like one side fully like lit up at this point, but we're still only one season into the show. And we have mm-hmm. a bunch more sides to complete down the line. Um, so in the giant metaphor game, that is this relationship. Uh, I do think it is moving quick when it's put in a position to move quick. But when they are just left up to their own devices, it's still very much we're, we're young teens. Yeah. And we're 
you don't know where then we're at. 12 year olds dealing with the fallout, which is such a great point yes. because like they get put in these emotional high stakes situations. They accidentally sacrifice their life for each other. Annabeth says, you know, I'm not leaving the underworld without your mom, etc. And then it's like when they meet up on the pier and she runs up to hug him and he's like, doesn't hug her back. And it's so awkward. <laughs> and then he, you can tell this is in my opinion of where Percy is at, that Percy feels so bad that he didn't hug her back that he's then like trying to like, figure out how she feels for the rest of the episode and be like, it doesn't have to be weird. We don't have to be weird about this. Yeah. I, I think it's a lack of emotional maturity in between that will keep the pacing right and the feeling right as we go oh. through the rest of it. I I also don't... I think I'm going to have to contest a little bit the premise in the sense that, like, the, a lot of the big Percipit set pieces from The Lightning Thief all the way through are these moments where Annabeth has to confront something about herself that makes her vulnerable and that she's not used to other people seeing with Percy mm. also being present. Like the original version of the tunnel of love is like spiders. the first time we see Annabeth spiders. It's like an, emo it's like not an emotional vulnerability per se, but it is the first moment we see that she's not good. She's at a weakness. Nothing. She has yeah. a weakness that Percy is really seeing. And she's like embarrassed by the fact that this happened, but ultimately it works. It ends up being fine. And it doesn't weaken the relationship between the two of these people who've like met two or three weeks ago that like, she kind of like really, that like people don't often see her like this, but he did, and it's fine. And they move forward. Like Sea of Monsters, also like the whole thing is that like hubris reveal where like she almost like kills herself going to the sirens by accident, right? Swimming to the like rocky shores. I, I think there 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 are anal there are analogs. The mm. emotional and like ideological force of this moment definitely is different and right. greater. But yeah. I don't, I'm trying to think through like how much of that is relational and how much of that is that like we are going to see a cleaner, clearer Annabeth yeah. personal growth philosophy journey throughout the five seasons. Well, okay. At the beginning of this episode, Percy has a big moment where they're walking on the side of the road and he's like, since the river, it all feels different somehow. He saved me, my dad. I guess I just really never thought that's something he'd do for me. So maybe I got to take things more seriously now. And that was like, whoa. Also, the shot on Walker as he's saying this is like straight, like slightly under angled, looking right up at him as his chest is like puffed up and he's walking on the street. He looks like a hero. He looks like he's having his protagonist moment. And that is a super big turn for him to all of a sudden mm -hmm. say like, my dad did something for me. I want to get to know him. My first thought when I saw that, when, when I heard that line was Luke, this is going to be like, I've been waiting the entire time for evidence of why Percy wouldn't get on the Will Princess not. Andromeda at the end of the season, you know? And this is the first time I'm starting to see that, that like his dad showed up for him and that's going to be what keeps him fighting on the side of Mount Olympus. But then Annabeth here is having her moment in reverse where she's like, mm -hmm. mm, maybe my mom isn't always right. So now I'm like, how is Annabeth? Is she going to get really close to getting on the Princess Andromeda at the end of the season? <laughs> <laughs> Liam, do you want to say something? You look like you had a thought. Oh, I was just going to say, when you said the the camera angle of uh, Percy when he's walking on the road, the camera work in this episode is fantastic. The Specifically, the moment, mm -hmm. the shift moment in the interrogation scene. Yes. Where we get kind of like the, yes. the bird's eye, like, ooh. Yes. The two oh, close into the face from above. Noir. Oh. So good. So, and okay. uh, shout out Adam. His, 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 like, face in that moment, too. Just like, where it's like, what do you mean by that? I was like, this is, this is cinema right here. This is HBO. <laughs> Okay, that's Annabeth. I think what you're saying, Carter, is is so right that this is just maybe a slightly dialed up version of what 
her character does go through consistently until the last Olympian with like these little moments of vulnerability and weakness. I have a question for both of you again about Percy then, because Percy is coming into the season very unlike the books. Sally has taught him about the myths. So not only does he like know some stuff and Annabeth doesn't have to lecture him at every turn, but also he has this very clear idea of the gods being like a dysfunctional family and also that maybe the heroes in the stories aren't people to be looked up to. And that makes me think of Titan's Curse, where the mm -hmm. whole journey of that book is Percy realizing what he effectively knows in, already in season one of the show, which mm -hmm. is that like he doesn't want to be, like be Hercules. So I'm wondering if you guys think that this is going to really, because I really feel like this is, we're diverging now into altering timelines. Do you think that Titan's Curse is going to be very different? It's going to be just about him <laughs> saving Annabeth. Or do you think he's still going to have his teenage boy I'm fighting against the urge to be Hercules' toxic masculinity journey. I think it's going to be a story about hormones and gender. <laughs> like, those are the remaining components of that that we haven't grappled with as much. I think that, like, problematization of the heroes is always, is something that we have more on. But was also something that was, a like, in the books, I think we begin with him. We begin with that line about Perseus that is giving a little, like, ironic detach from the idea of heroes, if not, like, a full thoughtful critique that is well-rounded and connects into the way that he sees his own place in things, you know? Um, and I don't know. I feel like we'll accelerate it, but that there's still, there's still room to grow. And I, I also, you want to factor in like the season two, not character regression per se, but like Percy's only taking victories right now. And again, it's been a minute since I've read the books, but I do like Clarice is the one who gets the quest to go to the sea of monsters. And so like mm -hmm. big man on campus now being like realizing, like coming down to earth a little bit, there still could be that moment in Titan's curse where he is still trying to like, you know, he's, he's at the end of the day, like he's becoming more familiar with this world, but I wouldn't say he's like comfortable with this world just yet. Mm -hmm. And when he does get to that point, like I, the, the hubris I think will kick in of like wanting to remain being like, you know, the golden boy essentially. Yeah, and he wants the glory, the Kleos. Yeah, so I think based on right now, I could see why there would be the belief that Titan's Curse would have like a little bit of a tonal shift. But I think we have to really factor in like it, the the one step forward, two steps back that he could go through in Sea of Monsters. You know, like Sea of Monsters mm -hmm. is often written off as like kind of like the the jokey book and like the, I mean, I myself included, like it is, it's not even like, like include, like if I'm listing like my top three, it rotates between Titans, Labyrinth and Last Olympian and like Lightning Thief for nostalgia purposes. And like Sea of Monsters, I thought that was the coolest thing as a kid. Cause I was like Bermuda Triangle. This is awesome. But it's upon a reread. It is always the one that I feel like even I am guilty of not giving enough attention to it. So I think the show has the potential <laughs> to like really do it right. Especially because the movie sucked. Carter and I are about to scream in um, the son of the sea god at the bottom of the ocean with some girl. <laughs> it's a big Persebeth book for sure. I'm, I'm it's a big Persebeth book. It's a big Cersei book. It's a big Cersei book. But yeah, no, you're right. Like whatever happens in Sea of Monsters will help us set up. Like we need to see his regression. <laughs> and to be clear, this is not a Schrodinger's cat discussion. They haven't broken Sea of Monsters yet, which means that they definitely have not broken Titan's Curse. The, the cat is not dead, alive, out of the bag, out of the box. Th th there is still room for, for us all to continue to have discussions about what the yeah. Titan's Curse should look like. And I just guess up to the Titan's Curse, you know? <laughs> we have one more question, and then we got to run through the action so we can talk about Ares. The last question. 
Now, Liam, you've said it's been a while since you've read the books, but so I actually really want to hear what you think about this because we're going to come at it from like an over analytical perspective. And I want to hear what you think. What does it mean that Annabeth sees the fates cut the string at the beginning of this episode? People are discussing this. We had a whole conversation with the patrons um, at the watch party last night afterwards about what this could possibly mean. What do you guys think? I'm just frustrated because I, I said this on, on Riptide Radio. This was my one complaint with this episode. I thought it was way too nonchalant, way too casual. Like, I mean, it even had like the way that Grover reacts. He's like, they're staring right at us. And he's talking with the police. I'm like, the <laughs> fates are right there. And they just cut the like thread of life or whatever it is. Like whatever, like the big, like, mm-hmm. you know, way they describe it. And I remember in The Lightning Thief, like they give like an entire page to Grover's reaction to seeing the fates snip the yarn. And in this episode, it's just like, oh, it happens. And now we have a bunch of other cool stuff. And I understand that like it was the through line of then that gets brought back when Percy sits on the throne of them interpreting that as like, oh, well, one of us is going to die in this moment and we can't go against fate and all that. But it was just like, that's such a big moment. And like Rick uses a paragraph to describe how the scissors are the size of shears and like the way that the, the, uh, or like weather changes around like a lightning strikes when, as soon as the snip happens and this was, I was just like, that's it. Like it was, I, I, you know, I, I love to praise the show, but I also want to be critical in moments <laughs> where I'm like, damn, we could have given this a little bit more attention. And uh, I'm glad that they did bring the fates in, but I also hope they revisit the fates. So in my humble opinion, they can actually do it right. Ooh, <laughs> fiery hot. This is a spicy take. Yeah. Wow. Carter. But like, who do you, who's life? I, I, to me, that's the question. Like whose life is it? And like, why is it Annabeth? The speculation that, that we were having as we were watching the episode was like, does this mean that Annabeth is going to be the one who makes the choice um, at the end of, the last, the last Olympian. This is a full spoilers podcast. Sorry, I need to remember to be saying that during every episode, <laughs> just in case we have new listeners. We're about to talk about the very end of the last Olympian for a hot second here. I think it makes a lot more sense for Annabeth to see it. I think that they're both present in those last moments, and that if Annabeth becomes more <laughs> of the foil to Luke than Percy, even that would be such a hot choice. I would love that choice. You know. If we're not thinking so much about Luke in contrast to Percy, but if we're thinking about Luke in contrast to Annabeth for the rest of the season. Or like a three-way foil, I think I is mean, a structure that a lot of people have have used. And I think could make a lot of sense because Percy and Annabeth have so much different between them already. And obviously, we don't get an answer to this. This is like probably going to drive us insane. This is going to drive <laughs> us insane for the next five to ten years, I think. <laughs> and I would love to know. I, I can't wait to ask. I really hope they'll actually tell us. Somebody who worked on the show has to actually give us an answer to this. Was this something that they thought like insanely about or was it something they didn't think about? Because if it was something that they didn't think about and now it's causing everyone to go nuts, that'd be pretty funny. <laughs> you know, because I could see it being like, well, Annabeth is the perceptive one and the leader. And so she noticed this because this is an important thing to notice as opposed to like, no, 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 no. Like the fates specifically appeared to her but also somebody still has to die well i interpreted the the show's use of the fates of that being the the big like that's luke's death foreshadowing that is luke's death okay i'm positive that it's luke's death yeah so yeah i still did interpret that you know very bright lighting three second scene as like you know the big 
teaser trailer for what's to come in the finale. Not you want to see him but... again. You want to see him snip again yes. with a giant like like mayor of the town cutting the ribbon style scissors. I, I want I want like lamp posts like flickering like it's completely dark. You see like a silhouette. There's rain clouds coming, but there's no rain hitting them. Something like big and ominous and great. But I understand it's season one. It's it's Sorcerer's Stone. Like we have to get to the mature like level stuff. Like you know I what know, I mean. Wait. Okay, I, I we have to pause. I think that the fates are sickening. The costuming is great. They like are doing like tricolor things with like matching hair pieces. Like it's they're like detailed, but like low budget in a way that doesn't feel like the show's budget is low to me. I mean, like it probably like they didn't want to spend a lot of money on this as well. But like, I I, I think the the mundanity of the fates is also like feels deliberate and to me makes a lot of sense. That like as gods, like they can't hurt you in any other way than sitting still and like cutting a string right like i don't know they, they wouldn't need to be like bigger or like have weather effects to still be scary i feel like mm. is the the thing that the show is trying to do mm. i mean maybe for like annabeth because she knows their history but like as an odd especially like for audience members who aren't familiar with the source material like they're just going to see that and be like mm. oh what happened there like even grover doesn't sell the emotion yeah. on screen he's more concerned with like law enforcement yeah. and like yeah, I just I feel again, like I'm in the middle of both of your guys' takes. I, I love this episode. I want to emphasize. Like, I know we this. have to talk, we have other things to talk about. We have other things to talk about. But this is a big moment. Yeah, of course. It's it's my only complaints. It is it is probably my only actual complaint throughout this entire season so far. Everything else I've had issues with has been no more than a, than a nitpick. Like this is genuinely the first time I'm like, ah, I wish they did that differently. Um, but again, it's like the one thing I, I don't mm-hmm. want anyone who's listening to hate me because i i love this episode like it's okay to be critical liam it's okay to be critical i know and it also we're we're a a historically hater identified podcast like (laughs) and and don't let the fact that we have enjoyed the show fool you into thinking that we're not still haters in life because we are we just have to really (laughs) like the show and the show should feel really special that we really like the show (laughs) i really like both of these takes and i appreciate you both sharing them because i really was like also shocked by the daylight of this scene and the parallel drawn between the police and the fates, and which one is actually more dangerous to us in this moment. Do we know yet? Maybe not. Okay, we're going to go a little bit into the action of the episode so that we can talk about some very specific Aries things and other things that come up. Annabeth and Percy's hug. We've already talked about this. This is a great moment. I have to say the he's alive, I know it, that comes out of Annabeth there felt to me like a little Titan's curse nod or a a little pull from her whole like, Luke's alive, I just know it, trust me. And Percy's whole Annabeth's alive, I just know it thing when she gets like pulled up. It's a lot of Titan's Curse. This is the recurring motif of the Titan's Curse where we're setting it up now, kind of. But again, POV is different. This could have happened in the Lightning Thief canonically and we would have no way of knowing. But it's delightful. It's a nice detail. The hug is great. He's so (laughs) confused and then later he feels so bad and (laughs) he's trying to make up for it. It is so adorable. Annabeth on her end is so emotionally dropped into it for the first like five seconds and then looks gird. Gird, gird, gird. Oh my god, she's having gird. She's like, did I just hug him? I did not mean to do that. Girl, pull yourself together. (laughs) Then we get the hook. We get them uh, walking. We have that conversation about Percy's big turning point. And then we have, Percy, why are you being weird with me again? I thought we weren't doing that anymore. This is incredible middle school dialogue. This is what you were talking about, Liam, of like, they go through these high stakes situations and then they have to come back to 
the monotony of it all and they have to deal with the awkwardness like they're actual kids they have to try to communicate as 12 year olds percy thinks that annabeth's <laughs> being weird because they hugged annabeth is being weird about the fates it doesn't have to be a thing you know that you hugged me the most 12 year old thing about this is the second line that you hugged me it's true he was just standing there it was just happening to him because he was confused about what was going on but that is that is violent that is aggressive phrasing he knew he was wrong for that one. He knew he was um, on the prowl, on the attack. And we love that. We don't We don't love it as in normatively. We love this positively. I, th- th- this, is a, this is a true Persassi as a 12-year-old boy moment. Like, this is the kind of thing that he would say um, after recess, you know, as we're, as we're, like, packing up our lunch yeah. things. And it would, like, ruin the next, like, two to three days of, of class activities. Oh, yeah. You know what? I'm glad we talked about the fates this much because it's a very important part of this episode. It sets up the whole episode, really. Because after Annabeth talks about the fates, Percy says, Okay, guys, we need to talk about this whole fate thing. Three old ladies with a ball of yarn can't know what's going to happen. What I choose to do changes what's going to happen. And I can choose to do whatever I want. Fate versus determinism. (laughs) Percy is choosing to believe in determinism in this moment. And then later in this episode, he is going to surrender to the idea of fate. It is a very fast like realization for him. And I I really appreciated them talking about that. (laughs) Obviously with the prophecy, this is something we're going to think about hopefully for the next five to 10 years, (laughs) whether or not he can actually choose to do something differently and whether or not he is going to convince Annabeth that she can also choose a different fate for herself, which she does at the end of the episode. And like not to put too fine a point on it. Um, Like the fate determinism thing, like if you are like, if you were like me when I began say like 10th grade English, you might find this to be a conversation that's not just that interesting. We are not saying like metaphysically in the world of the book, is it true that the Oracle is correct or not? That's that, that is not the interesting question. Right. The interesting question is like, how many degrees of freedom do we have given the constraints, which is like the actual disagreement that they were philo- like philosophically having that like runs along all the previous ideological lines. And Annabeth doesn't believe that there are, that there are that many degrees of freedom that she is like heavily constrained by the will of the gods, by custom, by history and Percy thinks that those things are weaker Mm -hmm. constraints and that goes along lines of impertinence that goes along lines of who is going to try to like break somebody out of a metal trap chair um after they are yeah allegedly they're dead forever maybe indefinitely at least yeah you know Eric and Carter (laughs) are not personally concerned with whether or not the oracle is right Eric and Carter are personally concerned with whether Percy and Annabeth think the oracle is right well the oracle is is not necessarily right or wrong like Aries says it later in the episode. Like, is that what the Oracle meant? Or is that yeah. what Chiron said she meant? Like, that's, it's all yeah. up for interpretation. Yes. Like, anything that the, anything the Oracle good says eventually comes true in a, in, a, in a certain capacity. But up until that moment, there's no way to understand exactly what that capacity will be. So, yeah, yeah. Like, the, the yeah. that line, I think, very much exemplifies, like, what you guys are saying about Oracle right or wrong. Like, there is no right or wrong. It's all up for interpretation until it gets revealed, which is still an interpretation in and of itself. He, I, I'm going to get like, I'm going to make myself nauseous the amount of times I'm going to be like coming back to the coming of age of it all. Because if you like overthink about it, every story is a coming of age story because every story Mm -hmm. is like a character going through something and then growing out of it. But this is a very like kids entering the world for the first time concept. Like who do we trust? Who do we believe? What do we think is actually going to be possible with our own lives? And which adults do we listen to interpret Mm -hmm. our future? Um, and then we get Aries showing up on the motorcycle. I have to read the lines from the book because you guys, this is pretty sickening. The exact line from the lightning thief is 
The guy on the bike would have made pro wrestlers run for mama. He was dressed in a red muscle shirt and black jeans and a black leather duster with a hunting knife strapped to his thigh. He wore red wraparound shades and he had the cruelest, most brutal face I'd ever seen. Handsome, I guess, but wicked, with an oily black crew cut and cheeks that were scarred from many, many fights. The weird thing was, I felt like I'd seen his face somewhere before. <laughs> Liam, take it away. <laughs> I'm just, I, I don't have a lot of words anymore because I've just been like reveling in this just perfectness of casting and merging of worlds and everything. Um, Aries' arrival was the best because obviously we all knew it was coming, but like hearing the motorcycle in the distance and then like, oh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, that's not a car. It's just a bike. And I was like, oh, boy. It's a bike, all right. And then, yeah, just the, the way the way he interacts with Percy, Adam gets this character and gets this world. When I say like better than anyone in the show, that's not a disservice to like anyone else who has been on screen. But just like I guess when I say my expectations were like low, it was only because he's coming from wrestling. Like he's acted before. He, for those who don't know, uh, he had a very serious neck injury in 2011 that forced him to retire in like the prime of his career. And he spent the next nine years resting, recovering, going to rehab, seeing specialists till he was eventually cleared to wrestle. And in that time, he was doing like random side projects. He was in a show called Vikings. He was in a show called Haven. Uh, he played Adam Smasher in an episode of CW's Flash show in the season two premiere. <laughs> um, and so like, like acting to him was just like something to like fill the time and like, you know, he loves entertaining. And when he returned to wrestling after finally getting cleared in 2020, like acting went on complete pause. So when it came to like doing Percy Jackson, it shocked me because I was like, well, of course, you know, uh, any actor just wants to work at the end of the day, but he's not a full-time actor anymore. He's, he's very much a wrestler. So the project just had to be perfect. And going into it, I was like, how much of this is going to feel like a wrestler playing an actor, playing a character and how much of this is going to feel like the genuine character. And it just felt like Aries as I pictured in the books and the the what impressed me the most was not so much that he understood the character, but that he understood the world around it, because the delivery of his lines, nothing felt like he was telling or exposition dumping like he was he was sharing real lived in history that has all happened off screen. Uh, like the even mm -hmm. just like his first line of like, are you sure? Because you're really behind schedule. Solstice is in a couple days. I was like, that feels like a guy who literally just came from Olympus and Zeus was barking orders at him of here's the deadline, here's your mission, sort this all out. Like nothing feels like he's playing anything. It just feels like authentically that character. And it's so funny because that opening scene is like number 12 on my favorite Aries moments from this episode. And I love it. Like it's, <laughs> it's really special. Uh, everything that's happened with this casting. And I just, I'm, I'm stoked to see more. I really like this performance. I had no idea what to expect. And I love the manic energy, total mm -hmm. unpredictability. Like he's a little snot. He is like in the book, he's like really insufferable to the point of he's just mean. And this is, you know, we talked about this back with Gabe Ugliano and other things like so a lot of the adults who were just straight up mean and scary in the books are just like silly goofy now in the show which is a fun adjustment because it lets us bring in some humor. Um, and it also makes us question who the real villain is because he doesn't seem like a bad guy. He's entertaining and he has a very specific experience with his family and a very specific perspective on his family. I, I still find him quite annoying. 
parentheses complimentary. <laughs> um, but I think yeah. like the, the valence of the annoyance is different. Like we've been saying this family story thing this whole time, and like the energy that Ares really yeah. brings as this character is like like drunk mean uncle i feel like more than anything else like he's mm -hmm. not like in the books the energy that he brought was like random man who like very possibly is about to like kill you or something which is not what yeah. he's doing here like his energy like the energy is so familiar and the the bursts are things that like the kids are kind of like struggling to process but also have some framework for and they're like oh yes aries he's a little kooky sometimes and like he's going to do these things that will surprise you in the moment but like in the scheme of things you expect that he's going to do them right um which is which yeah. is different and something i was i was super mm -hmm. super impressed by but also i should have expected this going in for uh, for those who don't know like professional wrestling the wrestling side of it is like half of it and i would argue like wrestling in and of itself is like the least entertaining part the cool thing are the promos the monologues uh, a big thing uh with wrestlers is they will go out and they will promote their match within storyline to a crowd of for adam who wrestled for wwe for 20 years regularly ten thousand seat arenas speaking on a microphone completely off script just like conveying emotion getting you to buy in and back then all their events were pay-per-view events so they had to earn your dollar like it was on the job of the wrestlers to sell these matches sell these storylines get you invested to the point that you wanted to spend 50 dollars for a three-hour show and so he has 25 plus years of experience of doing unscripted monologues to arenas of 10,000 people where he has literally had them all in the palm of his hand. Like he'll say one line knowing that they will react with cheers. He'll say another line where they'll react with booze. He'll say another line, which will make the arena go completely silent. It happened when he initially retired and that shocked everyone of just like, yeah, the doctors told me I, uh, I have to retire. And like the way he delivered that line, you could hear a pin drop. So now you put him in a situation with, here's your script, here's the monologue and your audience is three kids. Put them in the palm of your hand. Like, that is why it was done so masterfully because this is someone who's coming in with experience of like puppeteering audiences of 10, 15, sometimes 80,000 people at, at a WrestleMania show. And now, oh, one-on-one -on -one with Grover and make him feel real emotion. All he has to do is slam that table. And Arian Samadrius said it, uh, you know, cheap plug. He said it to me in an interview one time. He was like, that was genuine cheer. <laughs> I was not like acting in that moment. I didn't know he was going to do that. And like, that was the instruction. Jet Wilkinson, who directed this episode, like took him aside and was like, yeah, no, like scare the crap out of him. Like, like, like do like push his <laughs> buttons and stuff like that. And the way he kind of like interweaves the monologue with the peaks and valleys and like trying being comedic at some points, but then also turning it to like, this is the severity of what's at stake. Like Kronos eating the gods should be silly. And he says that in a silly way, but then he follows it up with, and here's how serious it could get. And then he's like, mm -hmm. and then it could start another war. And you're like, oh God. And then he's like, wouldn't that be awesome? And I'm like, oh, like, geez, like you're taking me on an emotional roller coaster, and I shouldn't be surprised because mm -hmm. this is what I've seen him do every Monday or Wednesday night for the past 10 years of my life. Genuinely, I was scared. That scared the poop out <laughs> yeah. of me. Especially because I wasn't, and this context is, is helping to draw this out. Like my preconception of like what it involves to be a good theatrical wrestler is not, the kind of vocal delivery that he rests in as the default for most of his speaking, which is this interesting, like, dry, 
a little affected, but like not that loud and like almost like yeah, 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 like, yeah. like rough whisper talky thing. Um, that seems yeah, like yeah, it really yeah. would not carry um, like very far. <laughs> I was gonna say something so similar. Carter, that like what Liam is talking about is essentially he's like wrestlers are like theater actors, you know, yeah. they're stage performers and a stage they're performing for is... giant crowds live on a mic. And the biggest challenge for theater actors doing TV film is to be quieter. Like you just literally have to be quieter physically. It's hard because you're like, I'm going to use my diaphragm. Um, but I would love to ask Lynn Manuel Miranda about this. Like you have to like <laughs> you have to drop into a different place vocally, energetically, where you're still delivering the same energy, but it's on a much more intimate scale. And the way that that manifests itself most obviously is in the volume and the tone of your voice. And he does such a great job of like keeping that intensity while having that like whisper yeah. crowd. And okay, I, I always talk about the pandemic with like glass half full vibes because it happened and there's nothing we can do about it. And we either grew. I, I hope we all grew in, in some way. And a big thing that happened. We started this podcast. Like, yeah, like that's, that's a great thing that happened as a result. And one thing I hated about the pandemic was pandemic wrestling because it was in an empty arena called the WWE Thunderdome, which was the most post-apocalyptic thing I've ever seen. Everyone, <laughs> everyone joined via a Zoom screen. It was an episode of Black Mirror. I hated it and I will never rewatch a Thunderdome <laughs> match. However... I have rewatched many Adam Copeland Thunderdome era promos where he, the, 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 the way that they did this, he's sitting on a chair in the middle of the ring, spotlight on him, no other lights. And he did a lot of what you're talking about, of, of speaking in like a low manner and having the crowd in the palm of your hand. And of course, it's a virtual crowd at that moment, but it was forcing him to evolve in the sense of like, here's a whole different medium you're now tasked with grasping the viewer on the other side of the screen, not the viewer who is in person. How are you going to do that? And he changed his promo style a little bit and just, yeah, the cadence he has in this episode is like an exact mirror to the cadence he has in his like 2010s wrestling promos and all that. And it's just, it's, it's masterful. Yeah. Should we push Should we push forward a little bit? Yeah. Uh. Yeah. I think we covered it. Okay. Well, that was that was just the first interaction, right? So he decides that he's going to keep Grover here. That is a big departure from the books. And Grover immediately being like, no, I got this, made me so happy because he's such a good protector. He was like, I can chaperone and stay back here. And he obviously has a mission in his head because at the beginning of the episode, Percy says, we need to be detectives mm -hmm. here. We need to figure out what's actually, actually going on, which is yeah. another thing I want to say about yeah, now that we're past the mid-season, we've introduced everything, we've met all these people, now we actually have to figure out, like, what the heck is going on here? Because this quest is actually really complicated. The mechanics of it are very confusing, and the kids are confused as much as we are right now. And Grover took that so seriously. When Percy was like, let's be detectives, he was like, you're right, you're my best friend, and I'm also in charge of protecting you, and if that's what you want, I'm going to drop in so hard for this, and I'm going to interrogate the god of war who could disintegrate me, because you said that would be a good idea. And then he does it, and he does it so well. But before that happens, Annabeth gives some instructions to Grover before they leave. And I was really emotionally affected in this moment by seeing the way that Annabeth like delivered her instructions to Grover. No longer that like soldier on the bus in the third episode saying chips and soda, okay, you guys, as though she, they are simply her underlings. This was like, she was talking to one of her best friends and she was like, you need to be safe and you need to be careful. And contrast in just a couple episodes of how much she has grown and learned how to trust these boys like her friends. Wow. That's acting. That's direction. <laughs> you know, that's writing. We're going to take an ad break here and then we'll be back for uh, the rest of it. 
Acts two, we're in the, we're, we're experiencing the, I love that you mentioned the CW, Liam, because here we're experiencing the Riverdale lighting special going into the wander, Waterland amusement Every park. Every time we've seen this, we've been like, we, ooh, can we see? Can we, um, can I see, can, can you let me Apple TV starring Jason Momoa see any of this show, please? <laughs> that is probably my one critique is that I cannot see anything. And th- this is very apparent because I, when the episode aired like live on Disney plus last night, um, I was mm-hmm. trying to take a picture of that moment of my laptop screen and I kept being in the reflection and I'm like, this doesn't happen if it's well lit. <laughs> it was it was so dark that I was like, you just saw me like trying to take a picture with my phone. And uh, yeah, I guess that is like a nitpick complaint. But like, I, usually I watch with like lights off, big screen and all that. Um, but in a laptop scenario, we were we were fighting for our lives, to be honest. Yeah, I, this show was really, I think the sound editing and the light editing is giving it's supposed to be in a theater and for some parts that's fine i think the sound editing of that just means that you have a slightly less rich experience when you're on your laptop the lighting editing means that there are some shots that are very beautiful and i genuinely think were like great choices the scene where like percy and his mom are having their like final conversation lit by like the two headlights of the car is like amazing this scene unfortunately to me is not giving and i feel like there's like roughly one per episode where i just can't tell what's going on (laughs) unless i'm like under a blanket and the laptop brightness is maxed (laughs) and um it is at night but you know we we make some progress we move through we i think there is still like one like the moment where they're entering the park and you see the sign and you were getting the full lush vintage Persebeth screensaver experience with the sign above them giving a very historic reference. I was just gonna say if we could take like 30% of the fates lighting and bring it to Waterland. (laughs) 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 You wanted to see the fates the string here at Waterland where it's like dark and the lights. That would have been a cool choice. Um, That one (laughs) change might make this a genuine perfect episode. Right now it's like a 98.3 (laughs) <laughs> yeah but yeah the little like trick uh gate thing that they have to go through is a cute idea and it sets up that um this is Hephaestus's water park but also we get to see Annabeth staring up at the m- machinery while Percy thinks he's like about to be killed hurt yeah. or killed <laughs> and she goes oh look at that that's cool and Percy's like Annabeth focus and that was so important to me because we don't get to see enough Annabeth ADHD you know and ADHD famously manifests itself differently in different people and I just think that that was a great moment of Annabeth you know thinking yeah, a little bit. she was she was like bantering Percy off her back as this was happening so that she could think while also like staring at this thing and like puttering off to it, it was lovely. The details were I, I also, I do enjoy when a, a show or a movie sets up a rule for itself and then executes on it later. Because if this moment didn't happen, I would be like, why is Annabeth wasting a minute of her time trying to like move the gears on the throne chair and like trying to reverse it? Because I'd be like, there's no way. But then earlier in the episode, she was able to like analyze the situation of a Hephaestus trap and be like, oh, well, there's how we get out of it. So like, I like that they set that up and then it made sense that she was attempting to reverse something that was irreversible later. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's a great point. We switch back to Grover here and we get the Grover I'm 24, which always hits. never gets old. <laughs> um, I also, this piece of dialogue is so good. I just, I think we need to have a moment for it as he's trying to convince Aries that he's a big fan. 
satyrs are children of nature. Nature is brutal. Red in tooth and claw, right? Maybe unpleasant, but that doesn't make it untrue. You're the champion of all that. I respect it. Wow, Erica, that was like a good Aryan. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I've watched this episode four times in the last 24 hours. (laughs) And then he goes on to like cite all these wars, which we mentioned this in our Patreon live stream. It was a little triangle shirtwaist factory fire um, vibes. Like what's your favorite um, tragedy? But (laughs) that's also an A-push reference. I don't know. The the triangle shirtwaist factory fire as a thing is like a general American history. You might've heard of it. You should have heard of it. But I think it's a crazy ex-girlfriend reference. Season one, episode four, for those of you who are going to track it down. But, <laughs> but then he goes on to cite these wars and he was like, these are some of your best work. Like, blah, blah, blah. That really felt like Grover, like citing wrestling matches to me, to him and him being like, wow, nobody even like watches that one anymore. Like nobody talks about the good stuff. You really understand no my history. Adam Copeland versus Griff Garrison on AEW Collision from last week. Man, yeah, that makes no sense to anyone who's listening. <laughs> giving somebody who also has a kind of scary uncle and knows <laughs> what to say to get around it. It's giving that, it's giving like temperamental professor who you need to beep, boop, boop, you know, like p- punch in the right. Um. <laughs> Push the button. <laughs> you know what I mean, right? There's like a certain brand of like, sort of like very confident, self-possessed, like locked into a particular worldview, like older man, where really all you have to do is like, you could like, like vomit as though from Wikipedia, like two or three facts about something that they think is cool. That's every single old man. Are you kidding me? <laughs> My high school theater teacher, if I needed something from him, I'd walk up to him and, and be like, so let's talk about Sondheim's underrated musical passion for 10 minutes and then I can get anything I need to get out of you. <laughs> I, think, I think that came through in the, in the performance. It's true. It is underrated. <laughs> it is underrated. Yeah. Shout out to passion. Yeah. I was just going to say uh, Adam's first wrestling name when he first got into the business. Uh, so we have Adam Copeland, his real name, Edge, his most famous name. His first name was Sexton Hardcastle. Fun fact. <laughs> Yeah. Oh my. When you were losing all of your matches when you first started in wrestling, you had to make a name that people would remember and people did remember Sexton Hardcastle. I feel like this this must be how this must be how the other half thinks about like drag queen names. <laughs> I think that the world could heal if we could recognize that they are not very different. Just food for thought for everybody. Um, Drag is drag. Do you know what I mean? Drag is drag. Performance is performance. Performing gender is performing gender. I know that I know I know you guys are gonna follow me on that. All right. We're on the boat. We're going through the tunnel. We start to see the light design. We get the what is love come in. The inferior what is love, but the famous one, probably, I guess, in America. Um, I think we should shout out. That on our live stream, Robert, Robert said predicted it. five minutes. We gave them some guidance. We were like, it's not a Rick roll. It's, it's a little bit cheesy. It's a little bit old. But they got it. They had the idea that there would be like a cheesy 80s song. And then you guided them a bit. But then they landed on what it's Which love. Which was very correct. It was really impressive. Yeah. So, so what happens <laughs> is we have the string of lights. There was a moment, as one of our patrons pointed out, where there is bisexual lighting across Perseva. Um, It goes away pretty quickly. But... Um, <laughs> Well, what we see is this like light show animation of Hephaestus's whole life story. It does begin with Hera doing the what is love head move thing. Uh, podcasts famously being a visual medium. You can tell what it is from what I'm doing right now. This animation felt very specifically stylized, almost like the Hercules vase animation from the Disney Hercules film. Yes. The characters are pointy, like only silhouettes. This is where we have this discussion between Percy and Annabeth where Percy basically is explaining 
Hephaestus's story. He recognizes it. And he is saying, my mom told me about this. The gods are terrible to each other. Several things to note on here. One of them is Percy drawing here a distinction between him and Annabeth. Percy says the line that I think was in a bunch of the trailers, right? Like, this is what the gods are like to each other. This is the kind of family they are. And basically, he he hesitates before having the rest of this conversation because he is, he says, like, Sally, his mom, didn't want him to be like the gods, but he doesn't say that. He says he didn't, his mom didn't want him to be like you all. Like, he is lumping still Annabeth in with the gods the way that he does in, oh, I guess that was only one episode ago when they were on the train having that conversation about conditional love. Annabeth's response is different from last time. Even though that was one episode ago, one day ago, she says, quote, maybe she was preparing you so when you got to us, you'd be different than this. This. Listeners, this. This is what I'm saying is probably the most important difference between the books and the show summarized into one line. The presence of Sally, the theme of the dysfunctional family, Percy having more of a perspective on what kind of hero he wants to be and will ultimately choose to be. It is all this, that Sally was preparing Percy to enter this world and that Percy will ultimately be choosing the humanity he received from his mother. Yes, we're really emotionally getting into it when the ride starts to pick up. We get a classic hijinksy, colors flashing, stalactites looming, rush shot of them accelerating through the rest of the ride. It looks fun. It looks sick. Um, it looks like it lightly defies physics in a way that is just right for us to still feel the rush, the thrill. Water powers are way up there. There's definitely something silly and Persebeth to say about the fact that the water powers react here because all he's thinking about is save her, protect her, get to her, and the powers like react mm-hmm. because he isn't choosing to use the powers. They're just like an emotional extension of him. Mm-hmm. And that's really special. <laughs> I also love that Annabeth, Leabeth is freaked out by that. She's like, what did you just do? Why did you do that? <laughs> Don't do those water powers on me. What kind of witchcraft is this? <laughs> it's true. It's true. Her reaction is guarded. I felt like maybe I was going a little nutso, but then I saw, I feel like a, at least one or two people post about this online, that I was getting such Battle of the Labyrinth vibes from this episode. Um, first, the mention of the movie date which is um, the premise of Annabeth meeting Percy in Manhattan in the Battle of the Labyrinth. And then secondly, being underground and emotional things happening. And then also the the appearance of Hephaestus and the the machinery and the mechanical nature of it all. Yeah, it's true. I, it just reminded me a lot of that. Yeah, I see the vision. I'm following you. I understand. Also, the romantic cooties vibes. Yes. <laughs> interrogation. There's more interrogation. We've talked about it. This is where Grover is really pulling out the stops. He's speeding up. He is complaining about Athena to score points. I, okay, I was a little confused watching this. I don't feel like there is actually a big reveal. But in in this acceleration, it seems like Grover has heard enough from Ares to conclude that, like, Ares played a role in the theft of the bolt, and that he knows more than he's letting on. But Ares doesn't actually let anything slip, right? He just says, like, I'm better than Athena. Like, she's not that smart. Am I wrong? We're, like, we have to kind of read between the lines here to figure out, like, what it is that Grover is extracting from this interrogation. But we cut back to this island in the middle of the love tunnel with the big statue holding Oof. the shield the golden throne yeah the slim thick statue holding the shield <laughs> by the way i was like why did we make the statue so so built <laughs> yeah famously ancient greek statues were not slim thick yeah it's okay artistic freedom Hephaestus, i guess evolved with the times as well perhaps um yikes um <laughs> can't wait to say he was playing aphrodite <laughs> Ooh, that'll be a fun one. But we get up here and Percy's explaining more lore. In this case, it's more of Hephaestus' backstory and an instance where Hephaestus trapped his 
mom, Hera, as like revenge, basically, for throwing him off of Olympus as a baby. This is like, in most myths, the first thing he does when he gets back to Olympus as like a healed, recovered, partially, but like still with a disability god. I, th- I think the note on this was that some people were, some people, specifically Robert, in our um in our viewing was quite upset about this call out robert I'm sorry we, we had a disagreement about this there that i think is worth voicing because i think that a lot of other people are going to have this too and specifically because this scene in the episode for people who are a little too millennial washed in their cultural consciousness are going to be like oh there's a lot of parallels to this and like some stuff in harry potter and the sorcerer's now which has already come up in this episode one of the many differences that sets us apart from that is that it is not wrong for Percy to know things. And in this particular context, that Percy would know the story of Hephaestus really well, which is just a story of different Olympians treating Hephaestus terribly and not respecting him as an equal. Doesn't it feel like in this television adaptation, like canonically something that Percy would know a lot about and that Annabeth would maybe not hear about because her exposure to Greek myths exclusively comes from Camp Half-Blood? And she is so indoctrinated. indoctrinated in an idea about the gods always being just. I think it makes sense. Annabeth clearly does still know things. She's a smart person. She doesn't need to explain this myth for those things to all be true. And I think it would be a not good mechanic for us moving through the rest of the hopefully five seasons of this show that Annabeth is going to have to explain literally everything every time. I think you would tire of that seeing this on screen more than you would seeing it written out. Anyway, that's a brief aside. I think that's a really good point. I think that there are certain myths Annabeth would know and certain that she wouldn't. And I personally, for one, am not interested in having to hear Annabeth explain every single thing to Percy. I think that we can, as you said, move past that trope. Yeah. And let them all know different things. Yes. Because Annabeth is smart in a way that doesn't just equate to her spouting facts at everybody spouting all the time. Spouting facts at everybody, which is famously <laughs> she not has a classical definition of intelligence. Like Annabeth is smart in the sense that she can draw conclusions about the world given information. This is where we get the first seaweed brain name drop. Yes, it's the titular role. You made it. And I was thinking, so we met a bunch of people, right, at the Met and uh, at various other times. And when we'd introduce ourselves and say like, oh, we're seaweed brain, we have a podcast about, is person about the greatest love story I've told, blah, blah, blah. People would be like, oh my God, can't wait for you to see the tunnel of love. Or like, have you seen the tunnel of love yet? Or like, have you seen episode five yet? And we'd be like, no. And I figured it was just because Percibeth. obviously there's going to be Percibeth there. But now I think it's because they say this is the first canonical seaweed brain drop. (laughs) 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 That makes a lot of sense. Um, Specifically Zoe Neary. You're probably not listening to this. If you are, we think you're really cool. And (laughs) she was like, you guys are going to really love episode five. And she was right. (laughs) Okay. Okay. Wow. Now we have the acting. Now we have the acting. We have the crux of everything. The acting. Have we explained the mechanic? The mechanic of what's happening that Annabeth quickly discerns is that we can only get the shield if somebody sacrifices themselves. One of them has to sit in this golden chair that'll trap them forever until they, like, die. Who is going to sacrifice themselves? We saw Percy sacrifice himself at the end of the last episode, but it was a little bit different because he was about to die of this, you know, like, chimera poison. In this situation, they are both here as equals in theory... Percy is the person who got the prophecy for the quest. Annabeth is smart. What do we do? I'll just read them. Um, So the setup for this is that they're both trying to offer to make the sacrifice. And Annabeth says, basically, that you can't do it. You're the hero of the prophecy. You're in charge of this quest. And Percy is like, that's dumb. Annabeth says, what could it possibly be about if it isn't about that? And Percy's response is, you're better at this than me. You just are. And you know it. And listeners... She doesn't argue. This is important Because to me. we both know it's true and it would be stupid and wasting everyone's time for her to attempt to say that he has 
really any technical competencies that she does not have. This is Persebeth to me. That <laughs> Percy shows Annabeth the way that she wants to be. And that Percy sees Annabeth in the way that she needs to be seen. Mm-hmm. That he offers to her, you are competent. You are really good at what you do. You are smart and you are able and I see it and you're better than me and you're better than everybody else. And I've never questioned mm-hmm. that. That is the tunnel of love for Annabeth. Like what What more <laughs> could she need to, you know, that is her validation. That is probably the most loving, mm-hmm. caring thing somebody can say to her. It is true for Annabeth as a character. And I think that we as a culture need this specific moment so badly. I, I am going to have to continue yes. to drag that nasty woman's name through the mud a bit. We mentioned the Sorcerer's Stone already. There are, like, a number of parallels here at the end of the scene. Like, the shield drops in a way that, for me, like, very viscerally, like, sent me back to the film when, like, the sword topples out of the chest. Me too. Hand. But, like, famously, in the Sorcerer's Stone, we have all these conversations about why Ron and Hermione cannot go forward. Ron can't go forward because he's making a big sacrifice, but also because he doesn't have anything else to offer, and we know that. In the book, and I think in the movie also, J.K. Rowling makes Hermione give this ridiculous monologue about how Harry is a morally superior person to her, which makes it okay for him to continue and for her to not. And it makes sense. This is before there's even, like, a prophecy in Harry Potter. This is just book one. We're just 11 years old. Hermione's better than him at literally everything. But she has to cry and say, no, Harry, you have a lot of things. Books and cleverness are nothing because you have something else that I just don't possess. And that is not it. That is so absolutely incorrect. And I'm glad that we have this moment and that future generations will never have to see that nastiness. Cultural reset. True reset. Like if you genuinely like I'm getting a bit worked up. Like the idea of like a like a small girl like watching that scene and trying to have to back out what it means about life and the world. There's no reasoning offered. We are like plot armor is the reason why like Harry is a hero and Hermione is not even though she's better than him at literally everything. There's no amount of being better that Hermione could offer that would make that moment work go any differently. And this is a moment where we were saying no that's not true. All possibilities are open. This was the moment also where we were like maybe it might make sense for Annabeth to make the decision in the prophecy at the end because we're seeing these writers be more comfortable saying Annabeth is good at things and there's no reason yeah. <laughs> canonically why anyone would say that she shouldn't be able to take more responsibility and make more choices and be given opportunities yep. to do big things because she can do everything. And this is what it means to respect this character and for Percy to be like a not terrible human child in the year 2023. Yes. We've always felt weird about doing parallels or not doing parallels to that other series. But this, I think here is a really worthy parallel to draw because like you said, Percy gets to tell Annabeth that she is competent and she is the hero. But Annabeth also gets to say what makes Percy a hero. Yes. And it is valuable. We're not saying Percy isn't also a hero. Percy is Mm -hmm. a hero. But he is a hero for a very, very specific reason that at this point, we know deeply to be true because we've seen it. We have seen the way that Sally has Mm -hmm. raised him through flashbacks, through him discussing the myths that he's heard in this very episode, talking about the perspective that his mom has given him and, you know, sassing off about Zeus turning his daughter into Mm -hmm. a pine country. Like, we know we've seen all of it so that when Annabeth verbalizes it for the first time in this moment, we're like, that's that's right. He's different. And he is a hero for that reason. And there's something so special about her being able to acknowledge that and say, I'm learning so much from Percy. When he says this stuff about her being better, she is able to just sit there and accept that. And I think that moment also, to me, was huge. That she never has to contest. Like, she, she is allowed to just acknowledge her competency, full stop. 
without having to couch, without mm-hmm. having to be like, oh no, but you were this thing. Like she says that she's able to deliver that monologue afterwards and it still means something. But for their relationship, in all the ways that it develops, it is so important to have a moment that I think we get through the texture of the books to see it verbalized mm-hmm. in this moment that we all know that Annabeth is competent <laughs> and has all these things. And that Annabeth knows that she has these competencies and can sit in them and like relish in them while still being an imperfect character with things to learn and changes to affect in her life and in the world, you know? Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad we're having this conversation, truly. <laughs> I can't even imagine the psychological damage that was done unto me by the amount of times I watched The Sorcerer's Stone <laughs> and the psychological support and love that I hope young girls feel watching this episode. Moving forward with obviously this, the sacrifice happens. This conversation is so moving. I cried yes. watching Walker's eyes get teary, watching Leah have like a meltdown here. Yes. The actual CGI animation of the gold curling onto it looks like, like Walker's face Ivy or something like growing over oh, him in God, real time. It's beautiful. It's like curling. It curls over his curls yeah. and then it continues to curl over his face. It's absolutely stunning. The delivery that I'm okay. It's okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. Okay. That is giving. That is an actor of the highest level. You better deliver that same sentence with a different intention every single time. You better use a different action and a different tactic. When Leah says, Percy, stand up, I mean it, I... She got me. She's just a little girl. Okay, continuing with how this scene is a cultural reset. You can have a strong female character who is also weak sometimes. Yes. She is a little girl. We love the fact that Annabeth is a soldier and a general and that she deserves this responsibility because she is capable of handling it and she's so smart and she's smarter than yes. everybody. And also at the same time, she is a little girl. She shouldn't have to be dealing with this. The, we get to see her be genuinely vulnerable in this moment is so important to yes. me and that that vulnerability doesn't detract from her character. Exactly. And that she then uses that vulnerability to win the situation and to achieve her objective and to save her mm-hmm. friend. She doesn't actually smart her way out of this mm-hmm. one. That is wild because I think in the book, you know, Annabeth would be like, oh, here's the solution. I'm going to fix the machine and then it's done. Here, when Hephaestus comes out, Annabeth uses her emotional truth of where she is at in this moment and her vulnerability in being honest and saying for the first time how much Percy means to her Mm -hmm. and how badly she needs to save him. That wins her this situation. Are you kidding me? That is so special. That is special in the way of Percy powering up underwater and not on the battlefield, you know? That Percy is going to power up through learning to trust his parents and that Annabeth is going to power up by being emotionally vulnerable and not by being smart or using her dagger. It makes me emotional just to think about it. Um, I think it was Haley, our our amazing longtime listener and and patron Haley Deemers, who was like, this scene is like Pipabeth because (laughs) it is Piper in the blood of Olympus that convinces Annabeth that sometimes you don't need to use your head to solve every problem. Sometimes you need to use your heart. And you just need to trust your emotions. Mm -hmm. And then emotional truths are like real truths. Just as valuable. Yeah. Just as valuable as like intellectual insight. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's a big moment. Okay. Let's talk about Hephaestus. Okay. (laughs) When, (laughs) okay. So when Timothy comes out, Liam, share some thoughts on that. Just go ahead. (laughs) I was, I was just very like knowing I, I, we met at the premiere. He's just a very sweet guy. And then just like knowing everything that he had been through, uh, he, he shared with me that, 
So John and Dan Schatz are like friends of his. He didn't audition for this. This was pitched to him. And I, I honestly think that if he turned it down, there's a chance Hephaestus like wouldn't have been in the season at all. And they would have just waited to cast him because uh, he joked that he was like, I feel like they pitched it to me because they wanted to just hang out with me in Vancouver for like a week or two. Um, and <laughs> 100%. He, he was pretty vulnerable in saying like he was concerned that his current disabilities, because he had a stroke uh, in 2017, I believe, and that left him a bit physically impaired. He was like, he very much briefed John and Dan. He was like, I'm not the actor I was 17 years ago. Like I'm, I'm different now and i have certain limitations and i think that's what makes this hephaestus so special is because they mm -hmm. embraced that side and um i told him i told him this one moment and this was a phone interview too so it was different um because most video interviews it's easy to see uh when people like feel special uh, of being recognized but phones it's different but i like i felt this i would i asked him a question i didn't even know where this was going to go i was like there's one moment where the camera cuts to you during annabeth's monologue of the eater be eaten and all that and she's still talking but we capture how he's reacting in the moment not reactionary not after she's finished but as she's talking and mm -hmm. your book was a mixture of like shame regret but also a little bit of hope of like what could happen in the future and he said he was like, well, part of my disability is that like my facial reactions are not what they used to be. And that is everything to an actor. And he was like, thought he was going to have to rely on dialogue delivery so much more for this performance. So I am super happy for him that at least for me, that's like what came across in that like facial reaction moment. And I think a lot of people share that sentiment on Twitter. Everyone was praising uh, Timothy O'Mudson uh, after this episode aired. And to know how much like, not fear, but just like hesitation he went into filming that scene uh, and knowing how well it went is like really, really special. And it also makes me root for the character of Hephaestus on a new level because now it seems like he is the first crack within the 12 Olympians of possibly leading to a better Olympus, uh, an evolution, mm -hmm. like stuff like that. And the fact that it's him mm -hmm. and the fact that it's Timothy O'Mudson specifically playing him is awesome. Yeah, he's he's a he's awesome. Like I I couldn't say enough good things, and I'm very hopeful we see more scenes of him in the future. Because he did say he was like, I want to share a scene with Adam more than anyone. Well, he said he wants to share it with <laughs> Lynn because Lynn he's like he's like anyone who likes stage acting would be crazy not to want to share a scene with Lynn. And he, he was like, one time Lynn liked one of my tweets and I thought about it for like two days. And I was like, I can't believe <laughs> genuine famous people feel this way. Like, Girl, same. <laughs> Girl, us too. Oh, Real. Um, and this person knows about musical acting. I did not put this together when I saw the episode, but he was in Gallivant. Yeah. Which maybe three people listening to this will know. We Gallivant loved Gallivant. We loved Gallivant. so good in that show. Yeah. Which is a musical on yeah. ABC in like and 2016. It's funny talking yeah. about musicals and stage production. That entire scene to me was like straight out of like a Broadway show of like actor walks in from stage right on a platform. Yeah. And there's a musical cue of like he plays the yeah. and all that. Yeah. And then literally when the staircase goes up, I'm like, oh yeah, the props department. They're proud of that one. That was one that took them two weeks to figure out how to shoot that thing up from the stage. <laughs> and, oh, it was gorgeous. Yeah, it, yeah. it was just like how it was shot, how it was blocked and all of that was fantastic. And yeah, but on the, on the Adam point, uh, there is a history there. Like he has that one line where like, despite what my brother have told you, I'm not someone to be pushed around. And mm -hmm. I'm I'm so eager to see them interact because there's a very interesting relationship to expand upon of just like 
brothers that fight and brothers that, you know, pick on each other and date the same like, woman. Uh, <laughs> that is true. Um, but the, uh, the aspect of like, you're, you're almost meaner to your family at times when you're growing up because you're just like, well, they're my family. Like, I don't think twice about it. And mm-hmm. like, there's, there's a, a feud between Ares and Hephaestus that I, I don't think I ever thought about beyond the surface level of like Aphrodite being in the middle of it. Like there's a personal feud that doesn't involve Aphrodite that mm-hmm. exists between Hephaestus and Ares. And hopefully we see it play out in a future season and not even like too much, just like one scene. That's the magic of the gods in the books is like when they show up, it's important and you better pay attention. And I think that the show is doing that as well of like understanding like, oh, we're going to get Hephaestus for literally two minutes and 20 seconds. Let's make sure people remember. And uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's been 36 hours. I've watched this episode three times and I, I still remember. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you every single A-list actor who agreed to be a guest star on this project because they are not like, you're right, like the screen time they're getting is not what they're used to at this point in their careers being billed at. But they obviously, this story means a lot to people and we know where it's going in the future. And I'm just appreciative that we got such incredible actors to do such tiny, tiny parts of this season. And whenever they show up, they're just so dropped in and they're so well characterized and you believe that you know exactly who they are. I, I'm thinking so much about the AU where Percy really is just trapped there for like years. And Annabeth has just like many adventures trying to figure out, how to, to get him out. how to get him out. I would watch that. Oh, that's, that's like a very a beautiful timeline. Alternate, but classic setup that we do get a little bit in like whatever, yeah. Lost Hero and the Titans Curse and but mm-hmm. anyway. <laughs> yeah. Oh, can I read just can I just point out a couple moments of dialogue from the scene? I'm not leaving without my friend. Full stop. We're using the F word now. Mm. Um, Hephaestus, he's trying to use the love and approval of her mom to get her to leave Percy here. He says, she will be proud and you will be forgiven and all will go back to being as it always has been, always will be, as it should be. Yes. This is brilliant, right? <laughs> it's We're thinking like, to me, I'm like, oh, he's testing her, you know, because it sounds like something that the Hephaestus we know wouldn't say, or at the very least would say with like a lot of I think baggage. He, I feel like he would say it bitterly. Like his mm. his emotional entry point into the scene is basically assuming that everyone has the same emotional traumas that he has, which are about not being appreciated by his mother and being like not taken seriously by Aries and like equivalently peers with more conventional forms of privilege and power. And like he immediately leaves with both things. Like I'm not a pushover and, like, you need to do this so that your mom will like you again because that's what's most important to you. And for Annabeth to be able to stand there and say, like, no. The things that you care about are not... I, I don't place value on either of those things. And so, like, part of that being a motivation for her to stand her ground and do what she wants to do, but also a way to get through to Hephaestus and basically say, like, these things that are reasons why people don't value you are not things that I'm registering, I think it's also implicitly an important part of this interchange that Hephaestus can see that even though she's being a little bit sassy, that she fundamentally like can like, she can respect him enough and that they can like connect on this emotional level that they are able to connect on. And that tees us into Annabeth's monologue, which I will read word for word because it is maybe my favorite thing I've ever heard in my life. It isn't how it should be eat or be eaten power and glory and nothing else matters. Ares is that way. Zeus is that way. My mother is that way. He isn't that way. He's better than that. Maybe I was that way once, but I don't want to be that way anymore. I won't be like all of you. I just won't. 
And that was everything. This is a watershed <laughs> moment in American history as far as I'm concerned. Put this in the A-Push textbook. Put this on your DBQ. The time that Percy Jackson and Leah Savay Jeffries altered the course of history forever. It's so well set up by everything that has come to this point. Like the concept of glory. You know, when that first happened, I don't know if this ended up making it into our episode, but we were like, what are they talking about? Why is this something that we're introducing <laughs> so heavily? And now it makes sense. That is the concept that Annabeth has been leading her life on. It's a clearer way to summarize the like, I need approval from my mom is like, I'm trying to build up glory mm -hmm. and gain glory because that's what they mm -hmm. value in this silly, silly world of the Olympians. Yeah. But it isn't how it should be. I'm sorry, Hades town. To the world we dream about and the one we live in now, this young man had a gift. He could see the way the world should be in spite of the way <laughs> that it is. Like, this is what makes a hero. Yeah. A protagonist that I want to root for is somebody who, like Percy, knows that there is a better way and doesn't let his own terrible experiences with the world ever drag him away from that idea that things should be better, that they actually have to be better. Mm -hmm. And that a this is the first time for Annabeth to like out loud oppose her mother. That is a huge, yeah. huge, huge moment deal. for this girl. And the cadence of it. I, I don't have the skill to describe the way in which I'm so satisfied by the, the rhythm, the like rising of <laughs> the ideas that are stacked here going from Ares into Zeus and then my mother, my mother to Percy and then back to herself and figuring out where she fits in those things. It's everything. Wow. That she then uses Percy's language that <laughs> I won't be like all of you, you guys, you all. Yes. She switched her affiliation. They are already changing each other's very natures. That is Percybeth. <laughs> I'm not I'm not doing so well over here, guys. I, I, I don't know how you're doing, but I'm not doing so good. Um, well, we have to wrap up. Um, it's time to wrap up. You're a good kid, Annabeth. You can't tell me that's not a Lightning Thief musical reference. Percy is freed. The, the gold looks as beautiful coming off as it does going on. Face just lets them go. We bring the shield back to Ares. We find out that we're going to summon Hermes in the Lotus Hotel and Casino. I mean, we all knew that Hermes was going to appear in that episode, but now yeah. finding out specifically why that he is going to be our ticket into the underworld, that's very interesting. That's launching us. Yeah. We're not happening upon him. We're searching for him. Yes. We're searching for him intentionally to help us get to Los Angeles. And then we end on the cliffhanger in the zoo car of <laughs> Grover saying, <laughs> I we think need I got some paper Oh, <laughs> <laughs> we were talking about different iconic Grover lines. Um, yeah, Grover is a little fabulous. Grover said, can we get some paper towels in here? It's a little gross. I grew up in a forest, not in a barn. Not a barn. <laughs> Do you need to get me some kind of bedding here? And then he says, I think I got it out of him. I know who stole the master bolt. We've deviated. Lots of deviation. Yeah. I mean, we've we've been prepping for this whole interrogation scene, but I was genuinely at the end of this going to be like, okay, all bets are off. What are they doing with the rest of the season? I probably will go to the underworld. I know we're going to see Hermes. Literally, everything is up in the air, and we love it. Everything is up in the air. I love that. I really like the further we get into the season, the more the story diverts a little bit away from the books. I think that's really exciting, mostly yes. because it's not diverting away from the great prophecy. Yes. This is what is important. It may be diverging from the end of The Lightning Thief, but if anything, it is getting closer and closer to the end of The Last Olympian. I would have to agree. Yes. That is what makes it so incredible. And if anyone wants to come online and fight about how things are different from the books, that is what I would tell them. I'm not going to engage in internet fights. 
And I would encourage you to not fall prey to Ares's tactics and engage in internet fights. But if you want to clap back <laughs> at somebody, tell them that it's closer to the last Olympiad, please. Yeah. <laughs> because I think that's really important. Okay, like Rick was a part of this. And we know based on interview content and based on how screenwriting works, that the idea is that you were trying to tighten things up and have a nice, clean plot, push, ideology, vision through the arc of the show. Yeah. <sighs> well, thank you, everybody, for joining us for that structural thematic conversation at the beginning of the episode and then going through the action of everything, picking up on the little details. If you notice, Liam did, in fact, have to run away to go cover Wednesday Night Wrestling, but we did get to ask him for his answer to our John Steinberg's Tetrahedron of PJO showmaking question, so here's his answer. Tetrahedron. Oh, boy. I'll add that one to the, the vocabulary. It's hard. It's really hard to watch as someone who like knows the books really well because I'm like, is that line delivery, which feels much bigger than like a wink and nod going to land with people who don't know? I think this episode in particular did a very good job of retaining the momentum from the first half of the season in the sense of like Disney Plus has had this battle of deciding to do weekly releases and Netflix has had the luxury of like everyone watches at the same time and you got to finish it before the spoilers come out and like that chaoticness leads to like a huge success within like a very tiny week week and a half span of social media conversation and Disney is trying to do that but stretch it out over seven weeks and it succeeds with stuff like WandaVision and it fails with some of the recent like Star Wars shows and so like Percy Jackson is doing something in between where it's eight episodes. It's longer than your typical season of either of their giant properties. And it's a completely fresh property. So you're asking a lot of people to not only buy in, but then buy in for the next seven weeks. Cause first uh, week was a two episode premiere. And I think it was super crucial to hit the ground running with a really big episode in episode five specifically. And everything we got like Aries, Hephaestus, Everything with Percy and Annabeth, Grover's like characterization, opening on the St. Louis Arch, uh, ending with them on their way to uh, Lotus. And I believe, again, screeners, does Grover have the final line of this episode? Yes. And he says, I know who stole the bolt. Okay. Again, I, don't, I didn't want to say something that was like actually the end of a line of like episode six. The fact that we end on that note, it's like, how can you not help but tune in next week? So for newcomer audiences who are the ones that you're trying to retain, because like, you know, we've all watched this one episode collectively probably 15 times. Um, we don't need to be convinced. I think it does a really good job of understanding, rope you in at the start, make you want to come back at the end, and also give you enough in between to talk about for the next week. Um, so yeah, it was, I, I think, probably throughout this, throughout this whole season, this is probably the strongest episode of hitting all four of those beats. Nice. Nice. Good answer. Good full answer. And now we have the Nodi Awards. Carter, what would you like to nominate for this week's episode? I think that this is going to come off as a cop-out. And in many ways, it is. But what happened, happened. I think this is a Nodi Award for... for <laughs> the Nodi Award for the Oscar for Best Adapted Screenplay is how I'm going to set this up. The moment from Percy winding up to sit on that chair until the end of Annabeth's monologue to Hephaestus is probably like the cleanest tightest whatever like five minutes of television that i've seen in a really long time that is how you do payoff that is how you do 
word-by-word crisp dialogue. That is how you rewrite cultural history, period. I'm torn between two, and one of them is a cop-out, so I'm going to do both of them. One of them is the (laughs) titular role Nori Award (laughs) for the first Seaweed Brain name drop, which was so excellently held off of until this far into the season, and so effective and so brilliant. My other one is, I think, is going to be the soaking wet child actor award for (laughs) dunking these two children in tanks of water multiple times throughout the filming process of the show to get some gorgeous practical effects of Walker and Leah's arms reaching out towards one another underwater in the bubbles. That is an image that will stick with me for a long time. So thank you for the actors who endured swim training for that. Thank you, everybody who (laughs) was soaking wet during the filming of this show to get those shots. And now we have to choose a category for everyone to vote on. Yeah. I think we should do best Persebeth piece of dialogue because every single sentence has so much impact that they say to each other in this episode. (laughs) We'll do like the, we should go see a movie sometime. Annabeth's monologue. We'll do the hugging. We'll do the hug where Percy doesn't hug her back. (laughs) (laughs) All of those will be nominations. And then we also got Liam to record a little nomination before he left. I So I wish I thought about this more because when you first (laughs) asked this question, I was like, well, the easy answer is a category of like, the not acting award. Um, and so far there are two nominations of Percy broke the spear. Clarice screams out, but Walker's real fear shows through in that moment. That is a nomination. But so far I would say the leading candidate is Grover's <sighs> like jump when uh, Adam slams the table. I feel like that's not a super creative one, but I'm selfish because I technically like got those answers from those people. So since I created the nominations, I guess I'll own the category. There you go. Where can the people find you on the internet, Liam? Uh, you can find me on all socials at Liam T. Crowley, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. Uh, it's a lot more Instagram these days. So if you want to see like interview clips, uh, clips from Riptide Radio, uh, they all primarily live there. Um, and then, yeah, Riptide Radio. Uh, it's under Comic Book Nation's YouTube channel and podcast platforms. Uh, we air every Tuesday, roughly around... 9.45 Eastern, sometimes 10 Eastern, as close to after the Percy Jackson episode ends. We run that show and we have plenty of big guests uh, coming in the next couple episodes. We'll have uh, director of photography Pierre Gill on for Lotus Casino. He has a lot to say, uh, which will be very fun. And if you haven't watched this week's episode already, uh, I very much implore you to do so. Adam Copeland joins the show. Um, I am just doing my best to be professional and not like... <laughs> at how much we relate on every level professionally personally wrestling percy jackson everything he is such a joy uh he loves this character he loves this world and he did this show for his daughters who are diehard fans of the books before he even had the audition so there's a lot to love and i love connecting with these actors who play these characters because it just makes you root for the show in a way that you can't do before and that's really special um that's my long-winded side tangent about how much i love adam copeland um (laughs) but yeah thank you guys again for having me on the show and especially this episode too this was we we hit on all cylinders so much to talk about liam you have to answer one other question okay do you believe persabeth is the greatest love story ever told (laughs) Uh, because it's still ever told yes um but it was recently brought up to me resurrected to me 
that uh, the Emma Stone, Andrew Garfield relationship of Gwen Stacy and Peter Parker from the t- Amazing Spider-Man movies. Are you talking movies. about their fictional relationship or their real relationship, Or their actual real-life relationship. <laughs> the, their fictional one, because I don't know the history of the real one. I, I just know that that's, that's the greatest in comic book movies. But I guess that category is very narrow compared to ever. So uh, right now, I think episode five specifically gave a lot of ammunition to the uh, idea that it is the greatest. So... I will remain in this camp. Sounds good. Okay, you're free to go. <laughs> Thank you, guys. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us for this week's long... Historically <laughs> long recording. <laughs> historically, possibly the longest recording ever. Longer than Battle of the Labyrinth, even, maybe. Um, get excited, everybody. Next week, we're going to Vegas. Bye, y'all. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>